This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Today's guest is both wildly creative and always captivating. A man of extraordinary charm and skill, including master of close-up magic, a talented visual artist and illustrator, and a sophisticated performer. What really impresses me is his ability to tell a story and take his audience on a unique thrill ride every time he puts on a performance. Today, he talks about the art that brought him to tears, the beautiful letters from Brother Theo to Vincent van Gogh, and the complications that David Blaine experienced while performing the bullet catch in Las Vegas. Stay tuned for my dialogue with the devilishly clever creator of the show Inner Circle, Ozzy Wind. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. Welcome the spellbinding Ozzy Wind. How are you, pal? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing well. This is this is the one great thing about virtual meetings is that you can sit down with anybody at any moment. The world becomes smaller and smaller. <laughs> it sure does. And you know what? You're a master of things being smaller and smaller. Just to give the audience context, you are doing an extraordinary show in New York right now called Inner Circle, which has less than 100 people in the audience every night. And you're doing the most intimate of magic, which is close-up magic. And it is both under the most scrutiny, but also it makes the audience realize there's nothing hidden behind the curtain and there's no trap doors. It's all right there in front of their fingertips. So how is that going for you? What kind of emotional response are you getting from the audience right now? Let's start with the vision I had for this show, which is the best magic I've ever experienced in my life was after dinner with a bunch of friends and there's a master magician sitting there hoping or begging him to do something for us. And this intimacy of, of seeing somebody do magic in front of you, inches away, is really, really crucial for a magic show. And especially the kind of magic show I'm trying to create. We built an unbelievable theater where it's almost 360s. There's people literally all the way around me. I think in order to experience this type of show, you have to have this intimacy. So how's it going? It's going well, because I, I saw it on a piece of napkin. I started as a little drawing in a coffee shop on a piece of napkin. And now I see it in front of me every night. So it's kind of cool. <laughs> that is cool. And you know what's funny? What they also need to understand is that you've raked the audience up at an angle where they can all see. Everyone's got a fantastic seat. And if there were test conditions for something like this, you have built that thing where they there's somebody looking at you from every angle absolutely i mean i remember when we went to the warehouse and we we had to rake the seats just enough so everybody can see everything we start putting chairs on buckets of paint and i said come on two more inches two more inches three more inches and and we had to fight because you know, it's within legality codes and whatnot and eventually we settled on something that was very satisfying yeah you're right they, they need to see what's happening and re as close as possible you conjure up a truly unique evening. The audience doesn't know what they're coming to. They hear that it's a magic show. But when I first experienced you, I walked into a hotel in Las Vegas, and it was not a formal show. You were kind of in a foyer with some other people. But you were at the center, and there was this giant circle of people around where it was, it was like there was some kind of street fight going on. Like I couldn't quite <laughs> see in from any angle. And I said, something is happening at the center of this ring. And that's one of the reasons, by the way, I love the name of your new show, Inner Circle, is that that's where you are. You're the epicenter of all this great energy. And it is primarily because you're such a great storyteller. You're such a good guide of Thank you. what an experience should be. So you're using the medium of magic and you're using the medium of interaction, a very immersive storytelling where they're contributing by writing 
on things and and picking things and having to go do some activity. But it is really the, the idea that every single night is unique. Absolutely. What you just said, it's interesting. So in magic conventions, it's something we, we, we call holding court, meaning spontaneously there's a table and a magician starts doing magic and slowly, organically, an audience forms around him. And it's interesting what you said. There is a, a little bit of a confusion when you walk in and you, and you look around there's a circle of people and you don't know who is the performer. I love that. Yeah. I love there's no, no distinction between performer and audience. I'm one of them. They're one of me and the action happens everywhere. And it's, it's true. It, it inner circle kind of started, you know, organically in, in hallways of conventions and whatnot. Somebody said to me, that's Ozzy Wynn in the center of you've got to see this guy. So <laughs> I, I just wedged my head in between some people just to catch <laughs> Some, uh, you know, really the end of a routine, but I think it was at that conference where you and I met and it was a late night party at Chris Kenner's house, who's the executive producer of David Copperfield's show. And the whole place was littered with performers and, you know, people who had an affinity for that kind of performing. But you and I caught each other up on a balcony or something where we, we stepped away from it all. And I remember talking about films and art and all sorts of things. And I mean, that's partly my invitation to you was that I'm intrigued by the kinds of things that you do. You've written books about your magic, but really it's awesome that you also illustrated and did the paintings for the work. So it's kind of a full expression of you as an artist. In any of those books, how many drawings or paintings are you doing for a book? My first book repertoire had almost over a hundred paintings, which made it so much harder to do. But I wanted the book to be beautiful. I wanted it to feel like an art book almost, even though most magic books, line drawing, very simple to the point, which is very nice too. As you said, I wanted my personality to be all over the pages. But in art in general, the, my obsession with painting and visual art has informed my magic so much over the years in ways I could have never predict. I mean, how could you think that a, a painting can teach you how to do a better trick. So now I'm looking for similarities with, within all the arts. Like I have friends who are chefs, and we, we, like uh, Grant Ackett from Chicago, the famous uh, restaurant Alinea. He and I bonded in a matter of minutes. I, I don't cook. I don't cook well. <laughs> but in a second, I realized I'm, we're speaking the same language. We're trying to do the same thing. And for years I've been saying, you know, what's the difference between the best cup of coffee and the worst cup of coffee? By the way, the process is exactly the same. It's the, the beans, the roasting, the grinding, the extraction. Everybody's doing it exactly the same way all over the world. And yet, the worst and the best, the difference is minuscule details. Like, unbelievable. But that's the key word, detail. <laughs> yeah. Your attention to detail and the chef's attention to detail and the amount of yourself that you put into anything. That goes from the farmer who makes that bean to the guy who picks that bean to how they transport that bean to the temperature of the water to every. So the detail is minuscule in every amount of every step of it. But that's how far you can be off. If you think about a golf swing, the edge of that little iron can be off by one degree. But on the other mm -hmm. end, the ball goes completely out of bounds. Correct. Just because the very first strike of it starts to go off by 1% for every part of the time it goes down the course. I think that's really what I'm attracted to about the work that you do. I'll even get more specific about your attention to detail. The words you choose when you tell a story, the scripting, whether it's intuitive or whether you're spending all that time writing it out is very intentional. You're a very, very intentional guy. So you don't leave it to chance. It's true. Yes and no. This is something Francis Bacon said, who's a great, one of the greatest painters of all time. He says he's a medium for chance. He's a medium for accidents. Meaning, yes, everything is intentional, but in a way that you open your heart and mind for accidents to pour in. So it's weird because it's, it's counterintuitive. It's contradicting. On the one hand, yes, control decisions, intentional on the other hand, I want things to happen organically because I know they will be the best, the most, the funniest, and the most. But you and you keep paying attention. You do a show that's well structured. You know exactly every bit in the show. 
but you keep your ears, mind open for something different to happen. And you go, ah, I'm at the point where in my show, now the audience is teaching me my show. Mm. They're teaching me what my pieces mean. The name Inner Circle became evident to me or, or, or significant as I was working on the show. Salvador Dali said, you're about to make a painting and you understand what the painting is about. Don't bother painting it because you do have to start with intuition and feeling and then let the process teach you something you did not know you're about to learn. To me, it's really that balance of, yes, control, intentional, precision, details. But then you need to open your mind and listen to your audience, to the moments, to look what you created. Those moments are when wit really surfaces because you're able to respond quickly to something that's unique in the moment. So you prepare the show so that you have a, a structure. You're protected from the rain under a shelter. But you step out and you look for a lightning strike at every chance you can. You want to respond to that unusual name of the person who volunteers or maybe that's what makes it fun and funny and, and personalized. Charlie Chaplin in his filmmaking talked about life is a tragedy when you see it in close up, <laughs> but it's comedy. It's, so it's comedy when you view it in the long shot. Okay. From editing. But as you say, it's the exact same moment. So the question is how close do you bring them in at what point? And when do you step back and talk to the audience? So you're, in a way, directing this behavior when you talk about drawing their attention to some object. I, mean, I love magic for many reasons, but I love misdirection and the idea that the audience focuses harder than they ever have because they want to beat you at this game. They really want to catch the trick. Or the magician's leading them around on a leash because they know that people use their ears and their eyes so often to look where they think, I'm not supposed to look there. That's where we want you to look. Exactly. <laughs> the same when you tell them something, they go, oh, I'm not going to listen to this guy. But it's very, very hard for them to take that step away from using those, particularly those two tracks of their seeing and their hearing because they, I would say most people come into a magic show a little bit like a detective. They kind of want to expose it in a way, even though what happens in your show particularly is, they can't track it. This is a crime scene that there's no solution for them. And then they just let themselves go. The, I'm thinking about particularly your appearance on Penn and Teller's Fool Us, the one where you set up front. People are trying to fool Penn and Teller and then Penn and Teller try to figure it out. Well, I am going to take you on a trip where I show you how the trick works and then we'll see whether or not you agree or don't agree. And it's an extraordinary piece of theater. So, I mean, you know that I'm a fan and I love the work you do, but I'm a theater guy. And when I see somebody using all the tools of theater, when I see them using the stage craftsmanship, and I love, I, I would encourage folks to go Google that Penn and Teller performance because the whole secret is up on the screen behind you from the minute you walk out in terms of the story you're telling, the way you're dramatizing a card trick to become a moment where they have a big aha and then they go, uh-oh, this twist is mind-boggling. I mean, it, it baffles them and bewilders them to the point that Penn and Teller say, this is a journey we didn't see coming. I think that's a, it's a great, great piece of work. Well, thank you. Magicians always protect their secrets. Most of the secrets are really disappointing. It's this, it's that, and you, it, you one line and you understand the whole concept. So one day I'm watching this amazing magician by the name of Tommy Wonder. And he released all of his secrets, all of his tricks on a set of, of three DVDs. It's for magicians only. And I remember one trick particularly that he teaches. And I'm watching the explanation and I'm thinking the explanation is prettier, more revealing, more interesting than the effect itself. It's a feeling I had. I'm like, what the fuck? I mean, the, the secret is more beautiful than the effect and the, my audience is going to miss out on the most beautiful part of the trick, the secret. So I've made a note. I want to do a piece where I'm working backward. I want to invent a beautiful method. I didn't have a trick. <laughs> let's invent a beautiful secret. And then the trick will come. And friends came over. I always showed them Tommy Wonder's explanation and they got it. And I, I said, hold on. Lay people can appreciate it. 
They can understand. He, he was a nut. He was crazy. He was detail-oriented. He was an engineer. He was a builder. He, he, the economy of how, the structure of the, wow, blew my mind. So sometimes people ask magicians, how do you create a piece? That's the beginning of it. You were being touched. You try to analyze what is it that touched you? And that's what I wrote in my notes. The explanation is more beautiful than the effect itself. It's interesting. Yeah, you know what? You tap into something, though, that I think is, it's something that many people miss about artistry, which is the practice, the behind the scenes of a Broadway show. All of those things sometimes have an elegance and a sophistication that allows the performance to happen but you wish you could show them the mechanics of it. You wish them, if you could see the person backstage dressing the character and putting the wig on them, you go, that's where the magic is happening. <laughs> yes, this person made a quick costume change and came out, but took three people to make it happen. And that's what they often miss. And so, yeah, yeah you succeeded, I think, in, a, in the most extraordinary way in doing the piece that you did do because it turned what was, what felt like a card trick that could be done at a children's party in a way, because there's, <laughs> it seems like it's uh, some kind of, of elimination type of thing initially. And so the fact that you're so casual and so informal about the delivery of the beginning of the trick, and then you reveal all of the details and people go, Oh my, this was all going on while I was sitting here w wondering what was. And, and anyway, and then you proceed to, Fool them again. So it isn't just the explanation. It's the fact that you you sucker punch them once you get them relaxed into it. But in a way, they're being punched three times, but they, they think only twice. Because I do teach a lot of really good principles about magic that they then dismiss as bullshit. And it's not. <laughs> they're real secrets. And they're really good secrets. Only that I convince them that it's bullshit. Right, right. That's great. No, and I, you know, Penn and Teller I saw off-Broadway doing a cups and balls type of routine with clear glasses. And they, yeah. they have to show the audience how the trick works in order for them to go on the ride. But subsequently, I always like that too, when people go, oh, okay, maybe I don't know how this works. And then it's, it's not a dude with a fake thumb. Once they learn one little thing, they want to say that about everything. Oh, the elephant's in the fake thumb. So it's kind of nice to be able to, especially in today's day and age, where YouTube is, is, it's out there to spoil just about everything that was ever kind of a fun riddle to have. There's access. So tell me a little bit maybe about what your opinion is, not about people exposing things, but about living in a world where there's more access to the answers without somebody spending time figuring it out. I always think it's fun to figure a puzzle out, but if you can just look it up and go, oh, it's that simple, you know, what's your point of view on that? In my program, let's see, I have my program right here. I'll read it verbatim. Uh, there's a philosophy that I always thought was very precise about magic. I wrote, my job is to lead you as close as possible to seeing magic. And then it's your turn to take the, the final step to complete my work as a magician. I, I really believe that at the end of the day, if you go to a magic show and you want to see magic, you, you have some work to do because I can't do magic. I can... Create, come as close as possible to creating the illusion of magic. And in your head, you polish it. You close all the small gaps, all the cracks, all the things that are not precise. If somebody does not want to see magic, I don't care if it's the best magic show in the world, he's not going to see magic. Because he came with the attitude of, hey, I'm, I'm here to see riddles and I'm going to crack them. In my show, my job is to make you surrender. It's not about fooling you. I'm not here to fool. I'm here to care, to experience something that's intimate and fun and logic-defying, sure. But you need to want to see it. If you don't want to see it, you won't see it. It's true for books. It's true for movies. It's true for any art form. It's true for paintings. How much emotion? I mean, I cried in front of a painting once. It's just a bunch of marks on a canvas. If you think about analytically, that should not do anything to me. It's a bunch of pigment that are arranged in a certain arrangement and they create a mood, they create an atmosphere, a feeling, an emotion. There's a person there, a pseudo life, but I need to want to see it. And what, where were you located? What was the image that you were looking at? 
It happened to me with a few pieces of Vincent. And I know I have, you know, over the years, I've learned so much about Vincent. I read this six volume set of 900 letters that he wrote, which, by the way, I've never cried out loud from a book. Those letters to his brother back and forth, I had to put the the book down and just, I was crying. And and if you care, it's, it's, it's a letter that Theo wrote to his brother, Vincent. Vincent just lost his mind, starting eating his paints and and drinking turpentine. Lost his mind. And Theo, his brother who supported him, paid for his supplies and whatnot, lodging, whatever, wrote a letter from a brother to a brother telling him how much he means to him and how much he means to the art world. This passionate love just brought me to tears. And and those letters were not, not intended to be read by millions of people. They were intended to read by one person. Yeah. It's, a, it's a very intimate glancing to intimacy between two brothers. It just killed me. You experienced the true empathy of brother with a brother in turmoil. And there was something about that support and that the notion of saving him in a different way, because I know that he was a big supporter in trying to sell his paintings and get this attention to him. But, but ultimately he was a guy that had demons, mental demons. He moved right in there, I guess, the way we would all love somebody to tell us we have value just as a person, brother to brother. That's a, that's worth a, a look. I will I will read that book. It will take you a while, but it's so worth it. But in general, isn't that that's another thing about art? You know, the more you know, the more knowledge you have around a piece of art. Now, when I see Vincent's paintings, I see it in context of someone who, who lived a very difficult life, someone who struggled as an artist. The stories are woven into those uh, paintings. And, and to me, that's what we try to do with storytelling. You know, a card trick is a card trick. Pick a card, put it back, here it is. Who cares? The most boring plot in the world. <laughs> the, the, it's the lost and found plot. Right. Here's your card. Let's lose it. Here it is again. But why a card trick is interesting or why could a card trick be interesting? Because the equivalent in art is a still life. Every painter in the world Painted a still life. Still life could be a bouquet of flowers, could be a cop, could be a vase, whatever. Why is that interesting? Why is Vincent's sunflowers considered such high art? And people are like, wow. It's just, you know how many people painted flowers? So Matisse said, I think it was Matisse who said that the most difficult, I'm paraphrasing him a lot, that the most difficult thing to paint is a, a rose. Because first you have to forget about all the rose ever painted. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, yeah, that is. When our still life is a car trick, all the emotion, all the meaning rides on top of it. The subject doesn't matter anymore. It's the brush strokes. It's the colors. What do you include? What don't you include? What what do you crop? What do you, All of your decision-making and the emotion, the sensations you had while painting it is being recorded on the canvas. Same thing for, I think, for car trick or any artwork. Right. So here's what you, what I noticed that you do is regardless of what that particular trick is or the next trick is, you are focused on giving each audience member the best experience, even if they can't explain it afterwards. It doesn't matter that the trick works or doesn't work. What matters is they have this feeling of euphoria. There's a sense of marvel and wonder. You're able to get as much as you can out of that medium of magic by not trying to fool people, but trying to guide them into having those moments of wonder. Absolutely. It's weird because it's almost like a sixth sense. You know, I'm I'm an atheist. I don't believe in any of this shit. But I feel like the audience can tell the motive of the performance. Why do you do what you you do? Is it fame? Is Is it, look at me, how clever I am? Is it, no, I'm making lots of money. They can... Basically, identify what is the motive behind your performance. And if it feels like it's not a pure or, or a good reason, they sense it and then everything just sinks. Everything is terrible. My best shows is literally, it, 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 it's weird because it's a bit selfish, right? When I'm having the best time of my life and I'm enjoying every second with these people in the room, that's the best show they'll see. It, it's really symbiotic. If I'm there to have fun and to enjoy this, because how can you enjoy a trick you've done a thousand times? It's not boring because I get to see them experience something that I once saw as a layman. 
And to me, it's, it's, it, that's the, the gift. It's the only way I can do it night after night after night. Yeah. Otherwise, be bored to death. Well, there's flow in that. You get to go. They create a ride for you while you're creating a ride for them. The hope is that somebody won't derail that ride. When you deal with audiences, they can come from work. They can come with a chip on the shoulder. They can just be getting out of a root canal. Everybody's in a different place. And I, I, I talked to a theater company in New Zealand called Indian Inc., and they don't become a unit until they're in that audience and they begin to go on the ride. Otherwise, there are a series of individuals that have been dropped into this pod at the same moment of time. And now it's your job to sort of create the bond and indicate where we're all headed. But the ride gets defined by how much they want to be there and how much they want to be involved and how they respond. I think you become the tour guide like, if you've ever been on the Jungle Cruise at Disneyland, it's just a boat ride through a bunch of trees with some ceramic animals. But when the guy starts telling jokes and everybody starts laughing, it's a whole different thing. It's a most memorable uh, experience at the park. Of course. It reminds me, I did a show. So you explained the premise of the show quickly, it, where people write their name on cards. It's blank cards. I don't have regular playing cards. Every single person in the audience comes and, and customizes one card with his name. He can do drawings, initials, whatever he wants. So I start by thinking, oh, that's a cool idea to have a deck of cards made by the audience. And the whole show happens, relates to their names and their identities. One night I'm doing this trick where I ask people to take, you know, one person, take a bunch of names. Do you know any of them? No. Okay. Can you think of one of their first names and see if there's somebody in your life that you know by this name? And they say, yes. And then I reveal all the names they didn't choose. And eventually I reveal, oh, you're thinking about blah, blah, blah. And it's a lot of jokes and it's fun and it's really, really a cool trick. So one night, and this is when I told you that the audience teaches me now about my show. She takes the cards and she's looking at the name and says, think of one name. And I don't know why. I immediately know the person she chose to think about is dead. And now I don't know. Oh, is in the audience? Yes. And she's holding a bunch of names, thinking of one of those names. And the name she's thinking about is a person that she knows who died. Oh. And I have like a million gags and funny lines to say at this point. And I'm like, I can't. I can't. And then I, I literally, I, I said to her, listen, I, I see the emotion. I see... This is a name of a person who means a lot to you and it brings lots of memories and whatnot. And I stopped the show and I said exactly this. I thought this shows it's a cool idea. But you, I really, I said it to my audience. You taught me that these names mean way more. Mm. These are triggers. They're triggers for memories, for people. They mean so much more. It's not a cool idea. It's, it's something else. And it's, it's a, it, that is the amazing thing about the, that journey we talk about, the flow we're talking about. I think the, the best performers I've seen are those that are willing to let the audience be the co-author of the show. That is really great. And I, just, I know that you just explained it to them, but I have to reiterate <laughs> okay. that there are no numbers and there are no suits on these cards. These are just pasteboards that are used to for people to put their signatures on. And therefore, when somebody picks a card... They're sometimes picking another person to be involved in the trick or it's it, it, the, the whole thing is there are signposts that lead you to other places. And that I think is one of the nice things too, is that it doesn't feel like a novelty, like you're going to find the four aces. <laughs> when you find four people in the audience, you're now suddenly picking a team. I think that's earlier when I said immersive storytelling, they start to become a character in the plot of that trick. And they have to make a decision. And everybody, you know, as, as we shuffle cards and people see their, a lot of people, I see them pointing, oh, here's my card, here's my card. They know they can be next. They know that. There's this tension nonstop. I could be picked next because for the whole show, people pick names and things. And I don't want to reveal too much because so many surprises, but, you know, somebody chooses a name secretly and, and from the whole audience, I know who it is. You know, it's just crazy stuff like that. You're not finding cards, you're finding people. It's amazing. It blew my mind when I, I first did this show at the Magic Castle. I had this idea. Magic Castle in Hollywood is a little private club for magicians only. And 
for a layman to get in, they need to know somebody to get in. It's this beautiful club in LA, Los Angeles. And I'm trying to show a 20 minute version of it. And I, I swear, I, I thought it was a cool idea. Just a cool idea. And the response I got was overwhelming. People waited three hours in line to see the nine o'clock show. Uh, we broke a record, 7 p.m. at the castle, full capacity. Not a single person could get in. 7 p.m. The concept was greater than what I could do. <laughs> Kudos to you, though, for starting with the cool idea. <laughs> because sometimes... Sure. You no, know, you discover things by moving forward, by stepping into an experience, and then mm -hmm. not stopping there, allowing it to evolve, allowing things to... Because I think when somebody's derivative or they see something, they oh, I'm going to do something like that. Then that's the finish point for them is that they match what they see. There's somebody that can knock off a piece of furniture and make it look just as good, but they could never make the piece of furniture themselves because they don't go into a state of an incubation stage of trying to think about what, what else could be done? What if I look at this from a different angle? What if I make this with a different material? What if I choose to tell the story from a different point of view? And that oftentimes can make a, a world of difference. I read a screenplay just as a person to give notes to someone. And I'm pretty good storyteller and editor when I read things. I read this story and I couldn't, I kept thinking, why is this not interesting? This is, there's something about this story. And it was about somebody who had helped a cancer victim and somebody had this thing. And I was reading, I thought, I don't feel anything. I read almost to the end of the story. And I, and I thought, I don't really have, the notes are almost too great to give the person. And then I had the aha that the whole story was written from the wrong point of view. Meaning mm. it was from the helper. It wasn't from the person who had the disease. And there was a mystery person helping them. Now you have a, story, which is who's helping me? Why does this person care so much? I don't know who that is. It's really not interesting to hear from the mystery person that I was helping this person. So it's a page one rewrite to say the wrong character is telling the story, but it's all the difference in the world to feel that empathy of somebody helping you and wondering what can I do for them? How can I thank them? Who are they? But it was really strange to read a hundred plus pages and go, I don't know why this isn't interesting. I should feel for this person. Just coming from the wrong protagonist. But what you're saying in a nutshell is very important because I've noticed something. If you still ask questions, if you still say, what's wrong with this? What if I change the point of view? What if it's the what if and if and but and but and you keep asking, 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 you'll find more answers. I find that the performers that in a way, don't succeed are those who feel like they're, a ma they're masters. Oh, I'm a master. And you know what they do? They stop asking questions. You need to be a student. You're a student. And you keep asking. And coming from this point of view of, I know nothing. And, and I want this to teach me. And I want to learn from this. And I, you keep doing that. And I think that's really the difference I've seen, at least in magic, of a magician who does the same trick 20 years, the same way. It sucked 20 years ago, it's like 20 years after. <laughs> Only because he never asked more questions. He was very happy with all the answers he got on day one. And you say, no, no, no. Maybe it's not being told from the right angle. Maybe it's this. Maybe it's that. Sometimes the solution is weird. I'll tell you an example from my show. There was a trick that if I describe it to you, sounds Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So the trick on paper, the way I described to all of my people who worked with me, they go, wow, that sounds like a miracle. And the funny thing is the solution to fix the trick, because it didn't work in the show. Didn't. It was flat. Dumbing it down, making it less good, so to speak, made it better. And then I realized why, because it was a very visual trick initially. I made it way less visual. And what it allowed the audience to do is to complete the magic in their head. The magic you'll see in your head is the greatest trick you'll ever see. I can never compete with your imagination. It's the most complete, the most beautiful trick you'll ever see. That's why books, Stephen King was the one who said, don't over-describe things. Don't over-explain things. Leave room for them to imagine. So good writing starts 
with the author's imagination ends with the reader's imagination, which I thought was a very beautiful maxim to explain that. So it's it's funny how sometimes the solution is so unexpected, but it's it's only when you keep asking those questions that you can stumble upon those unconventional answers. Well, I find it in writing, if you're writing a character for a screenplay or television, in the script often you have to describe the person. And I just feel like being on the nose describing what they look like is not as good as one line where they can try to imagine a person. If I said, my Mm -hmm. dad is a guy who shows his affection through red meat. (laughs) Now you can see a guy at the barbecue or you can whatever. And and also you're thinking of your own uncle or your grandpa or someone else, because you've got to figure out what does that look like embodied in a human? Those things that you write in a screenplay as a description, they often don't even make it to the, to the, marketplace and nobody ever sees those words but those are the words that a casting director then begins to imagine the kinds of people and they bring in the wackiest group of of guys for the beer commercial because they're trying to find meat lovers i think sometimes less detail in terms of giving the audience a a chance telling them they're smart enough to do this to paint the picture or to create find the feeling in it I'm a big fan of the Impressionists because my art teacher used to say the biggest problem with hyperrealism is that it makes, and it's not true for all hyperrealism, but to a lot of it, it, it is, that people look at a painting and go, wow, how long did it take you to make it? Meaning the first question is technical. You're so skilled. How long did you do this? It, it's not, oh, what moved you? What's the, the meaning? What's the, the, what are you trying to, to tell me with this? It's all technical. How long did it take you to make this piece? And, and it's, it's asking the wrong question. The, the good hyperrealists, that there's lots of them, um, maybe not lots of them, but there are some good ones. They are capable of doing something that looks like a photograph, but still the image is so striking and strong that it's at the forefront. It's it's way more interesting than you being a photocopier. Who cares? But that's why the impressionists I like because they they need to summarize the feeling of or the essence of a person with a couple of brush strokes and they go person. Yeah. And it, you complete the rest of it or you smooth out the transitions. I want to approach a different topic here for a second because you are at the center of inner circle and you're the storyteller and the magician but you have been known to be quite a collaborator with many people prior, an inventive guy, clever at solving problems. Uh, I know that David Blaine presents Inner Circle. You've been friends a long time, but you helped him in the development of, of routines. And what is that process like with any new collaborator where you're trying to solve a problem, create a new piece of drama or theater? First of all, I never pursued a career as a consultant. I never wanted to help anybody. I just, I'm a performer. I like to perform. I like to create magic for myself. And David was the exception because David and I became instant friends. I mean, we're such a similar sense of humor. And we, the first night we met, we played backgammon until 6 a.m. I mean, we really hit it off as friends. Working with David was a great learning curve for me because, you know, over the years, I've, I've read so many stories about these people who can produce frogs in their mouth or catch bullets in their teeth or, you know, as a kid, I thought it was all a bunch of lies, just myths, you know. I never thought it was real. Now I meet this guy who is crazy. And he, and by the way, most people who can do, let's say, you know, a sword through their stomach or their arm, that's pretty much all they can do in a lifetime. That's it. One stunt like that, and and they run with it for the rest of their lives. David can do all of these things. All of these things. It's unbelievable to me. And what blew my mind is, I know it sounds weird, but it's real. (laughs) He's doing those things for real. And for many years, I really tried to understand why is he doing that? And, And just like any good art, it's, is using his body to tell us that we can do a lot more. We can push the boundaries, the limits of what we think is possible. But almost like using his body as a canvas, there's a lot of risk to deliver, I think, a very strong, important message that nothing can stop you. And by the way, he's not reckless. 
He's very, he studies the science of it and the, you know, it's not like someone who just jumps into, you know, he understands what he's doing and he, he pushes the limits of his body very carefully. But what he does is un, like unbelievable. Although I do take pride on one thing. When we worked on the bullet catch and I was in the meeting and I was suggesting presentations and whatnot, you know, and then we perform at the MGM in front of 16,000 people. We did one rehearsal and there's a mouth guard that he puts in his mouth and he, he catches a bullet inside the mouth guard in his mouth. And in, during rehearsals, the mouth guard broke as he was catching it. Not, not severe, but it broke. So he, now he flies his dentist next, like on, on a red eye from Ohio to Vegas to fix the mouth guard an hour before showtime. <laughs> And this is all documented. It's all like uh, Matthew Akers, the director, was, you know, documenting the whole process. And now he's doing the piece. I'm on the mic explaining to the audience, you know, what's happening on stage and how precision and even stepping on the stage can shift the gun. And it took us an hour to get it just to, so David can pull the trigger with a, a string. Oh, he's firing it at himself. Yeah, yeah. Wow. He's both. He's, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he catches it. And then I, I'm looking at David and I see that he's in pain. He's like, what the fuck happened? And I, I'm like, shit, is he okay? Did, did it go through? Did he not catch it? The mouth guard shattered in his mouth, literally broke in half and, and, and shut all the way to the back of his throat. He went to the hospital and I was traumatized. I said, I am helping somebody, my friend, I'm helping him. And, I, and it's all on video, but I, it, I, I remember I was like, David, if you do this one more time, I will never work with you again. Never. And everybody's like, no, relax, relax. I'm like, no. If you do this again, I'm never helping you. And that's my biggest achievement. So... Yes, he can push the limits of his body, but he cannot do the bullet catch. Good. Well, Too listen, much. that's a that's a gift to stop somebody. One of the things that makes his presentations and his premises so strong is that there is a there is a little confusion because he did do good magic and sleight of hand and on camera stunts. And so when he decides to go under cold water or hold his breath or whatever, whatever crazy stuff he decides to do they don't realize that's a real organic journey they go well it must he probably's sitting by a fireplace right now and he'll just come back up through the ice later <laughs> it's a little bit of the too perfect theory that he has proven other magical ways of doing things so i mean i think that more and more it's it's evident to everyone that he's actually stepping back in time to even before Evil Knievel did a stunt that could kill him. But, sure. but spectacle was at the center of that story. And I do remember Evil Knievel talking about when he used to make all the jumps, people got less and less interested. It was the element of missing a few jumps that made them lean into the humanness of who he was. When he started breaking bones and... He didn't even come close to making it across the Snake uh, River with the, the canyon jump. And that was one everybody tuned into. So, I mean, I think that he's, I would give David credit for being a, a smart and focused, but also a, a great showman of laying, Unbelievable. A, just marketing a thing that says, hey, attention, everyone. I'm going to do this one thing one time at this one place. Meet me there. And it's pretty hard to get everybody looking at one thing these days. So kudos to him and the team. But but I also applaud you for for not I, – I don't think I would put a, a, a fixed mouth guard back in my mouth. Gee. You know, he did, the last stunt he did to, that impressed me, and I've seen him do a lot of crazy shit. He, he did a show – I think it's called Hot Chilies. Is that the show where people hit oh, super yeah, yeah. hot stuff? So – I know David can tolerate spicy, but that pepper, that's the spiciest pepper in the world. So first of all, he's tolerating all the spices, but people don't notice if, if people watch it. Notice he doesn't take one 
sip of water. Not once. Not once. And at the end, they give him ice cream and he goes, no, it's okay. It's amazing to me that this, this is like unbelievable mind control. And I, I said to him, David, how, how the fuck did you do this? He says, look, I'm going to suffer anyway. So it's either I show it or not. I chose not to show it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> What do you mean? I, I would cry like a baby. I, me too. Yeah. His, his tolerance and focus for not letting pain be part of the journey amazing. is, yeah, it's nuts. Nuts. That sort of borders on being a, a like mentally a madman. Sometimes I look at the premise and I go, even if I could hold my breath that long, why would I? Like, <laughs> I would, I would, I wouldn't want to do that. So, I mean, I think that in many ways that's what captures the audience's attention is that they, it's like watching a Marvel superhero in some way. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It goes back. It goes back to what we said at the very beginning. It's about honesty. It's about recognizing the motive of a performer. They understand that David is, first of all, doing those stunts for, for himself. It's because it's a challenge that he wants to take for himself. And they believe it. He's not doing it because, uh, look at me, Mr. I'm Mr. Macho Man or whatever. He's doing it because he finds either beauty or importance or a message in those stunts. And he wants to pursue them, first of all, for himself. And I think that every good art starts on a personal note. I'm doing this for me because I find beauty in it. And now I'm inviting you to come see the beauty that I see. And I think that's, that's a, uh, for me, the best art is like that. Yeah. I guess I wouldn't know if they were specifically mentors, but people you looked up to along the way. I know that Di Vernon, we talked about the attention to detail. That was a guy that was really, really great with detail. And then Juan Tamariz is a guy that probably this audience has never heard of. But I thought of him earlier when you were talking about being in a state of always learning. It feels like he's a student of life and he encourages his students to continue to be a student of life. Will you just kind of share what your relationship is with a guy like that and maybe anything that he might've shared that, that people it'd be a little take home thing for people. Do, do we have like three, four hours? And how long do we have? Yeah. <laughs> oh, he's a, he's a so, guy. A lot of people look up to. The first time I saw Juan, I was 15 years old. I've never heard of him, never heard the name, never seen his face. And he comes to Israel to a magic convention. He's the headliner. And in the program, he's being billed as the king of cards from Spain, Juan Tamariz. And I'm looking at the photo in the program, and I see this guy with crooked teeth, a purple top hat, a fake red flower, this vest, the blue jeans, and a very goofy pose with two fans. And the first thought that comes to my mind, it's, it's not really the king of cards. It's a parody. It's a parody, obviously. Now he got, he got, I see him for the first time on stage, and he speaks funny. This, barely speaks English, and he, but he's so, ah, I'm crazy, crazy, you, shabba, shabba, shabba. Yeah, right. And I'm like, okay, okay, it's going to be a funny show. And now it's a room filled with 200 magicians, and he fools Every one of us, trick after trick after trick. <laughs> and he's like the Colombo of magic, right? <laughs> he's against all odds. It's a person you don't suspect. He's not the guy who's going to be, is, is going to freak you out or blow your mind. So the biggest lesson I had from this guy, he's capable to manipulate your expectations. I often thought about it in terms of restaurants. You know, when, when I go to a very fancy restaurant, And let's say I paid hundreds of dollars for a meal. I'm now comparing every bite to the amount of money I paid. But if I go to a dive and it's like $20 meal and I go, what the fuck is this? The ratio of how much I paid and why, what I expected from that restaurant to be. So the same thing happens in shows. If you see a big production of this, you're expecting to see a spectacle and then it's a very, you know, simple show. You're going to be disappointed. And vice versa, so it's, it's really about manipulating people's expectations. I think that's Juan's biggest asset. He makes you doubt him all throughout the night. You don't think he's going to succeed. A couple of times you think he's going to fail, and he doesn't. And it's, it's just a beautiful thing to see. Well, there's so much we could talk about, and I'm tracking you here because I'm glad to see the spotlight on you and also you to have your own forum 
having this inner circle show, but also just having a place that's all your own, which means that you're not following somebody and you're not running from room to room and doing things that, you know, people <laughs> do at, at magic conventions. It's an absolutely worthy watch, especially your ability to remind us that we really start from wonder. When we are a kid, children are able to like almost sing before they speak because they hear music, you know what I mean? And they're able to sort of paint before they can write. So they're dancing really before they're walking in a way, you know, like, cause there's something weird about it. And this, nice. this is all the basis of the, of human expression is there that we had art and play in us and it kind of gets taken away through school and administration and job duty. And so we come back full circle as an adult and we have a child sense of wonder when we see a, a magic show like yours. And it's the most joyous thing to be able to leave a thing and then be able to say to somebody else, I saw something amazing. You've got to go do this experience. And I feel like that is a great credit to your ability as a performer, a storyteller, and an artist, because you are essentially painting a new experience every night for this crowd. And then they have to go back to somebody. And usually what they can only bring as explanation is you have to go see this. They can't say I saw this and this and this, and then my name was on a card and it just becomes too long of a journey. So anyway, I'm wishing you continued success with the show. It's called inner circle and you can get a ticket by going to ozzywin.com. So I want to encourage you to take your friends and understand that you have to pay for the whole seat, even though you're going to be sitting on the edge the entire night. <laughs> That's nice. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative with sound editing lovingly provided by Delilah Lovejoy. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp with additional production support and sanity provided by Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun because dot com is just two dot common and dot fun is so much more fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage, a circus of uncertainty. You're called a creativity. La 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 la. La 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 la. La 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 la. La la la.